Love that song, Dave. Good morning, IBC. Good to see everyone again. The title for this morning's message is A Witness That Works. Before we read it, um, I want to tell you that we've been going through the book of Genesis now for about a year. And I'm excited that we're coming to the midway point. Genesis 25 is right around the corner. But next week, if you, uh, if you aren't familiar with the story of Abraham's life, next week we come to a major climax in Abraham's life. It's the story of when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So I'll be sharing the gospel very clearly next week. This is a good opportunity for you to bring friends that may not have a clear understanding of what the gospel is. They will when they leave here next week. So good opportunity. I wanted to give you advance notice. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to be reading, beginning in verse 22 and concluding the chapter this week. Let's read it together. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would give us great insight into this passage. What may at first glance appear to be nothing special contains the very words of you, our God. And therein we find treasures forevermore. So I pray, God, that you would help us to be an attentive people, an eager people, a zealous people for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I like to begin most of my messages with a rhetorical question that will help to plant the seeds, if you will, of the direction that I feel like the Lord is leading me to go in the message. So today let me ask this question to get your mind stirring. The question is this. Why do human beings love to watch other human beings? Human beings seem to have an insatiable appetite for studying how other people live out their day. This is really just a simple fact. If you watch TV, you'll notice that more and more these reality TV shows keep popping up. Reality TV shows which seem to follow people around as they really do mundane, simple tasks like folding laundry or making dinner or changing the oil in their cars. Reality TV shows are pointing us to the simple truth that people love studying other people's behavior. And now, with recent innovations like 
YouTube and the more recent Facebook Live, people can literally live out their entire lives in front of a camera. I, uh, I read an article this week called, Is Reality TV Taking Over? And the point of the article was this. They were studying trends and looking at the current ratings and noticing that the top TV shows in this country are all reality TV shows. And so they're looking at the trends and noticing that more and more of these are popping up and they're suggesting that within the next 10 years, mostly everything we see on TV will be reality TV shows. This is just one example in a whole lot of them that point us to the fact that people love watching other people do ordinary things. And so I want to ask us a question. A couple weeks ago, uh, we were looking at the story of when the angel of the Lord met with Hagar out of the desert. And the point of that message was that God sees people, and people have a desire to be seen and known. God sees right to the heart. If you were here, you'll remember that message. Well, now I want to flip it on its head and ask the opposite question. What is it about human beings that makes us desire to watch other people so much? Is this, could this possibly be, something else that God has put in us? A desire to study the behavior of other human beings. And if so, what for? Why, if God put it in there, why? I want to suggest to you an answer before we even get going and unpacking the passage. Could it be that we love watching how other people ride their bikes and get their mail and mow their lawn? How other people, what makes other people cry? What makes other people laugh? What makes other people angry? All because we are aiming towards learning something about ourselves getting an answer to the big why questions of our own lives. And we think that if we watch and study other people's behavior enough, we might get a better insight into what makes us tick and get the answers to those big, hard why questions. It could be. could also be that we study, study other people's behavior, aiming to justify some of the things that we do. Silly things. For example, sometimes I'll sit up on my balcony watching other people run because I'm a runner. And so I'll watch and I'll say, oh, thank the Lord I'm not the only one who has a silly stride when he runs. It comforts me to know that someone else does that silly thing. Because I look weird, I think, when I run. Could it be that when we're watching other people on reality TV shows and someone has a silly laugh, you go, oh, thank the Lord I'm not the only one with a silly laugh. We're looking to comfort ourselves. Perhaps that's why we study other people's behavior. There are two fields of study that you can go to college and get a degree in that really are aimed at this main thing. Sociology is the study of social behavior, behavior of a, a, a people group. Psychology is the study of the human mind and how it affects human behavior. And I think that all of us dabble in these two fields of study to some degree. This is why if you were to go walking down on the average summer day in Beach Haven, walking down the main drag where homes are, you'll see people sitting on their rock or out on their porch for hours just watching people. Or out on the beach, you'll see people there for hours just watching people. Or if you travel over to the local mall, you'll see people sitting on a bench. We even have a term for it now. It's called people watching. Makes sense, right? We'll see people that will sit in malls just for hours, just watching people. Studying almost. Measuring all the things they have and coming to a conclusion in their mind. We look at people's facial expressions and we wonder, I bet I can tell what they're thinking or feeling. We look at people's, how they shop, what they spend their money on, all collecting data. Why do human beings have a desire to do this? Well, 
Intuitively, we all know that by studying behavior of another human being, we can learn more about what they believe, right? We've been talking about that for the past year, and if you've been tuning in or listening online, you've heard me say this over and over and over again. When you watch how someone spends their time, their energy, their resources, their money, how you spend what you've been given, you can tell what they believe is most valuable to them. So let me ask it like this. If a reality TV show were to come to your door and say, I'm going to follow you around for a month, is that okay? And you say, sure. And at the end of the month, we're going to bring it to your church or your work, and we're all going to watch it together, and we're going to determine what matters most to you by how you spend your time. That's a pretty good scientific way to study what someone believes. Not what they say they believe, but what they truly believe. And so, we have to ask, if God put this desire to study people in us, what for? Well, I hope you'll listen carefully to what I'm about to say here, because this is, I'm going to build a whole message around this, so don't miss it, okay? Because God knows that his human beings have this desire, the desire to study one another, he has designed your faith life to be visible or studyable, if you will. Why? Because when other people study your faith life, they will see him. You might want to jot this next phrase down. We call the process of allowing someone to study our lives, allowing someone to study our lives for the purposes of seeing God witnessing. That's my own definition. Let me say it again. We call the process of allowing someone to study our lives for the purposes of seeing God by what they see us doing, witnessing. Jesus had a lot to say about witnessing. Let me give you a couple things about what Jesus said. Jesus described this process of witnessing like this. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, many of you know this passage. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we were to take that last thing that Jesus said there, we might put it in a more modern way and say it like this. Let people watch you. Let people study you. Why? When they see you living differently, they will want the God that you have if they see you living differently. It has been designed by God that people study you. It has been designed by God that people watch because he has appointed you as a witness. So if you've ever wanted to know, Lord, what am I supposed to do to live out a life as a faithful witness? Today's your day. Because we're going to go through it point by point. Oh, I'm excited. I hope you are. Jesus said something else about witnessing. He said this to his disciples, all of them. Those who saw him face to face and walked with him. And you too. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses. To them, in their area. And to you, in your area. We've been studying the book of Genesis for some time now. A little over a year. And for the past six months, since April, we've been learning more about who God is by studying the life of Abraham. Now, up until this point, we've read mostly about the extraordinary moments in Abraham's life. One might think that this man lived nothing but the extraordinary. 
Abraham lived 175 years. Did you know that? That comes out to 63,875 days that Abraham lived. We get only a fraction of those days accounted for in the biblical texts. Just a fraction. What Abraham did in his everyday, ordinary life were what we can study to know most about who this man really was. You learn more about who a man really is by studying the ordinary, not the extraordinary events of his life. And so we come to this passage, which I read just a few moments ago, that gives us a peek into the day-in and day-out business practices of Abraham. Most people, you know, I was surprised to find this weekend as I was reading through all the commentaries and all that anybody's ever written about this passage for years and years that have gone by, there's not a whole lot. Not many people have preached on this. Not many people have even written on this. They skip over it like, ah, not much there. Oh, my goodness. I beg to differ. And I, I think you'll find the same thing when you leave here today. Here's what's going on in this short passage in Genesis chapter 21, the conclusion. Abraham and Abimelech had apparently made this business deal to divvy up the water scarcity that was overtaking the land. There was this particular well that belonged to Abraham, and it was an important well, and Abimelech had no idea that his people were keeping this from Abraham. He he claims he didn't know about it. So Abraham goes to Abimelech, Abimelech comes to Abraham, and Abraham wants to make sure that this matter is settled. Abraham is settling in an area called Beersheba, and Abimelech is the king of Gerar. He and his commander of his army, Phicol, come to Abraham, and uh, Gerar is about 10 miles south of Gaza. It's right in between Canaan and Egypt, and where Abraham is settling is a place called Beersheba, which is about uh, 10 miles outside of Jerusalem. So these two people are neighbors, and Abimelech has been watching Abraham. They've had several encounters throughout Abraham's life. This isn't the first time. You can kind of uh, ascertain by reading all of the encounters that Abraham and Abimelech have that they have encountered one another a lot. A lot. And so Abimelech has been watching Abraham, and with that in mind, I want us to go back and look at this text again. The Bible describes the responsibility of those who know God, like Abraham, to those who don't know God, outsiders, like Abimelech, this way. Pay close attention. Colossians 4, 5 through 6 We're going to be referring back to this a lot today, so make sure you clue in to what this verse says, okay? These verses. Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Here the Lord tells us through Paul, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt. Why? So that you will know how you should respond to each person. Here Paul calls those who don't know the Lord outsiders. Okay, so those who know the Lord, those who are in Christ, are in. And those who don't know the Lord yet are outsiders. That's how Paul refers to them. So why does Paul, how does Paul tell us to conduct ourselves on a daily basis? He used the word always, which means always. Every day. Every moment of every day, you're supposed to have this mindset that people are watching. Here's what we're supposed to do, according to this verse and all the others that are like it, that tell us how we're supposed to live our lives in the eyes of outsiders. We're supposed to live our lives in such a way that it represents that we know court is in session. There is a trial that's going on right now, and every human being is involved in it. The trial is this. Every one of us is guilty of crimes against God. We call that sin. And those of us who have been proclaimed not guilty 
by the blood of the Lamb, are now supposed to live our lives as witnesses so that everyone else will see and can also know how to be claimed not guilty when their day in court comes. So, with that in mind, I want us to be very carefully looking at this passage about how Abraham lived out his day-to-day business practices so that we can learn about a witness that really works. The big idea for today's passage I put down like this. An extraordinary witness is established in the ordinary. An extraordinary witness is established in the ordinary. There are three things in this passage which we can use to know for sure how to live as an effective witness for Jesus Christ. The very first thing that Abraham discovered was that to be an effective witness, you must, point number one for today, you must make known the source of your daily bread. To be an effective witness, you must make known the source of your daily bread. In case that's language that you're not used to hearing, if you're a new believer or not a believer yet, the daily bread is another word for talking about your daily sustenance, the thing that gives you life, okay? Look back at verses 22 through 24 of the text we just read. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Keep that in mind. Key phrase there. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I've dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me in the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Now, it's key to understand here. At this point in Abraham's life, he's living as uh, what we might call a semi-nomad. Do you know what a semi-nomad is? It's what we might today call a squatter. Someone who has a temporary dwelling place where they migrate from place to place. They have a base camp. They have a base camp where they have either cattle or crops, and they travel back and forth from this base camp. Okay? Now, Abraham was anything but a squatter. He had been given divine rights to this land, but, now here's the key point, through the eyes of everybody else, he's just a passer through. They don't know that God has given him divine rights to this land, so they look at Abraham like you and I might look at a squatter. Keep that in mind. What would make this king of Gerar come to Abimelech? Abimelech, this king who had everything, would come to this squatter type, this passer through, this guy who, according to the customs of the day, would be considered an outcast? Why? What would make this king who had everything that by the world standards was a success in life come to this man Abraham? Abimelech was drawn to him. Drawn to him. Attracted to him even though he was a mere migrant in his eyes. Why? Because Abraham made it known. He made it known in his day-to-day ordinary life that God was with him in all that he did. Others witnessed this. This king witnessed this, and it worked. What specifically did people see in Abraham? That's a good question. We need to get to the, to the bottom of that. When Abimelech and his command, the commander of his army said, God is with you in all that you do, he was saying that there's evidence. I've gathered enough evidence to determine that you are blessed. Now, before you start to think that means that this king was coming to Abraham thinking, look at all your possessions. You're clearly blessed by God Not so. Not so. When he said, God is with you in all that you do, what he's saying is your life is clearly blessed. 
not that you are without trial, not that you are without hardship, not that you have all that I, the king, have, but clearly something is different about the source of your life than mine. And it's drawing me to you. I've been watching Abraham. Abraham had an effective witness on this king because he made known the source of his blessing, the source of his sustenance, the source of his very life. So think of it like this. Someone was watching Abraham from their porch rocker. Someone was tuning in to the reality TV show of Abraham's life and caught nearly every episode. And when they had watched every episode and gathered all the evidence about what mattered most, they determined God is with this man and all that he does. Are you getting it? If you want to have an effective witness, make known the source of your life. People are studying what gives your engine fuel. And when they watch, they are going to determine if yours is the same as theirs. What sustained Abraham was not what sustained all those who were watching him. What sustained him was different to all those outsiders, Colossians 4 again, looking in. Fine food and fine drink and fine living was what this king and likely all the others who are in your life like this king, outsiders looking in, are hunting after to sustain them, to satisfy them. But when they look in to see what is sustaining you, what it is that you're feasting on, will they see something different? This king saw that Abraham was eating a different bread than he was. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When this king looked in on Abraham's life, he saw a man who was trusting in what Jesus would say 2,000 years later. Abraham saw from afar off and believed, the scriptures say. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, do you know what everybody thought he was talking about? They thought he was talking about physical bread and physical drink. They completely misunderstood that he was talking about Food for the soul. That substance that really satisfies a human being. They completely missed him. So I want to ask you, before we move on to point number two, when people look at what you're eating, when people look at what the substance is that makes up your diet on a daily basis, are they seeing something different than what they eat? If they're not seeing that you are fueled by something different than they are. They will, you will never hear what Abraham heard Abimelech say to him. God is with you in all that you do. I've gathered all the evidence of your life and it's so clear. There's something else that gives you life that's different than me. If you want to have an effective witness, make known the source of your daily sustenance, your daily bread. The second thing, if you want to have an effective witness like Abraham had on this king, make known the source of your daily treasure. That's point number two for today. Make known the source of your daily treasure. Look back with me at verses 25 through 30 of the text. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, so you can see there's a business deal going on. Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this thing, you didn't tell me, and I've not heard, it, heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? He said, 
These seven new lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Now, at first glance, you might say, this is just a normal old business transaction over a well. What could there possibly be about witnessing in there? Oh, please don't miss this. This was the most exciting thing that I studied all week. Don't miss it. Here, Abraham seizes the opportunity to resolve a dispute over a well, okay? Despite the fact that uh, Abimelech didn't even know what was going on, Abraham found this desire in him to make sure that this debt was settled. If they were going to have this business relationship, he wanted, he wanted to make sure that this didn't come between them. Why? Why was this so important to Abraham that he had to bring it up? So clear. Abraham knew that the reputation of the Lord was now at stake. This man had just come to him and said, God is so clearly with you in all that you do. And Abraham said, I need to bring up this business matter about this well. Because clearly you're seeing that I belong to God. So now I have to make known to you the source of my treasure. Here's where I get that. Abraham was exchanging with this man the currency of the day. Livestock, right? If you've been studying the Bible any amount of time, you probably know that livestock was the currency. That was their money. And so Abraham gives him a suitable amount which would have been comparable to any kind of business deal like that in this day. Livestock. But then he goes above and beyond and gives these seven ewe lambs. E-W-E. It's pronounced you. You know what it is? Female. That's what you means. Female lambs. That was extremely valuable. Way more valuable than male lambs. Do you know why? Because female lambs will continue to reproduce. So each time there's a new one, they're reminded of the integrity of this man who gave us really valuable livestock. This was way above and beyond the call of duty for Abraham to do this. And do you know what it said to this king, this outsider looking in? I'm a businessman. This guy's a businessman. Something is different about what he treasures than what I treasure. Because in business, it's all about money. But not to this guy. Something's different. Boy, Abraham taught this man the source of his greatest treasure. This speaks volumes to outsiders looking in. Show the people around you, Christian, what Abraham showed Abimelech, and you will have a witness that works. So now, all week long I was thinking about, Lord, who are the people that I have in my church? What kinds of people? What are they, how do they spend their lives? If I could summarize it, how am I going to do this so that I can bring this home to them? Well, I decided that I was going to divide our church up into three groups. Most people, unless you're retired, spend their day either as a stay-at-home mom or a, uh, they go to a job. And so, I want to divide our group of people here today up into three basic categories. Now, it won't include everybody, but it, it'll include the majority. And I want you to see if you can find yourself in these categories, okay? First, we'll talk about, um, we're going to talk about self-employed. Self-employed. This would be anybody who's like the head honcho at their job, okay? Self-employed. So even if you don't own your own business... If you're somebody who is in charge when you go there, this is your category. Second category, employee. Anybody who goes to work, school teachers, architects, businessmen and women, and um, uh, counter people and lay people, whatever you do at your job, if you're not the head honcho, we're going to put you in that category, employee. The second, third category is retirees. Okay? So try to fit yourself into one of those categories if you can. And what I'm going to show you is how you might show the people in your life that are studying your life what's most valuable to you. Okay? Listen carefully. Let's start with the business person. I'm going to give you three. Number one for the big business person. First thing you can do is regularly forgive 
debts. If you're a businessman, somebody who owns your own business, make it a practice to regularly forgive debts. Do you know why? This is going to confuse people. This is going to confuse people because other businessmen, they're in it for money. If you're in it for something different, they're going to go, why would he forgive this debt of mine? Second thing you can do if you're self-employed, to make people know what your true treasure is. Number two, be charitable. Do pro bono work. Give away what you're selling. Give it away. Let people see that what drives you is different than what drives the average business person. And this will confuse them. And they will want to know what it is that's driving you. Don't you want what I want out of business? No, I want something different. Third thing, if you're self-employed. <clears throat> build your business around the acquisition of souls rather than the acquisition of money. This is the most important one. If you build your business around what matters most to the Lord Jesus, he will make sure that your business stays in business. Build your business around the acquisition of souls because that is so clearly what matters most to God. And if you are here living as an effective witness, this will speak volumes to people looking in. Next category of people that are here, employees. Number one for employees, the way that you can show people that your treasure is different, be last. I looked at an article that was in US, USA Today this week about the number one things that employees want from their coworkers and from their supervisors. And one of them was they want fairness in the workplace. Fairness. Everybody gets their fair share of whatever it is. If you go in and you don't need that because your treasure comes from somewhere else and you willingly put yourself last, this will confuse everybody who's studying your life. You're going to go, why is this person always putting themselves last on purpose? This is different than everybody else who's vying for first place. What's different about them? Second thing, if you're an employee and people are watching, number two, Work as though already approved. As I was reading through this list of, in USDA Today about what employees want from their coworkers and their employers, they want recognition. They want to know that they're approved by their peers and by their employer. If you live out your day at work as though your approval comes from somewhere else, no one's going to understand. Why don't they care what the supervisor thinks of the project they just finished? It's going to confuse people. The third and final thing for this group of employees, work for the praise of others. I should have put hard in there. Work hard for the praise of others. Everybody, not everybody, the majority of people in the U.S. workforce today are working for praise. If you say, I have praise, I, and when I have it, I give it up to the Lord. So let me work hard for other people's praise so that they can do what I'm doing. This will confuse people. Just like when Abimelech was watching Abraham and he was confused and came to him and said, clearly, God is with you in all that you do. It's confusing. The last group, retirees that are here this morning. Now, many people in this category, in this season of life, they go into this season of life with a mentality like this. <laughs> I have worked so hard to give to other people all my life and now the time has finally come. The time has come for it to be a little bit about me. This is the mentality of a lot of people that go into retirement years. And so, if you make the decision not to think that way, oh my goodness, people will be confused. Other retirees that are watching will be confused. First thing for retirees today, 
give up your time. Do you know why? This is the hot commodity that everybody wants to retire to have, right? Oh, when I retire, my time will finally be all mine. I can choose what I do with my day. If I want to play golf all day, I can play it. If I want to go on vacation, I can go. If you give up your time, people are going to go, wait, 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 wait. You worked your whole life. Why are you letting someone else determine what you do with your time? Don't give it away. You worked hard for this. Keep it. So confuse people. Second thing, number two, Frank, give up your home. I know a lot of retirees who think, oh, man, it's finally ours again. The kids are gone. I'm going to take that bedroom. I'm going to turn it into an office, and that bedroom is going to be a gym, and this bedroom is going to be a little reading nook that I've always wanted. If you give up your home, retirees here today, people are going to say, what are you doing? It's finally yours. Do something that just makes you feel good. No, 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 no. I'm not living for this world. I'm living for a different world, and I'm here as a witness to show you what I value most. Third thing, retirees. Give up your time. Give up your home. Give up your money. A lot of retirees are living on a fixed income, perhaps totally dependent upon Social Security. Money's tight for a lot of retirees. If you give up your money, people are going to say something's different about what they value. They have so little. Why are they giving of what little means they have? This won't make sense. Do you see the common trend? If you want to have an effective witness, show the world, make known to the world what the source of your greatest treasure is, and it will confuse them, and they will want the God that you have. Friends, in case you're trying to come up with a phrase that is a, a, a way to describe these tactics, it's called countercultural. Go against the grain. This is exactly what an effective witness spends his or her days trying to accomplish. Now, here's what will happen at the end of this. When they finally get to the point, like they watch your reality TV show, and they've gathered all the information about what matters most to you, and they say, all right, I'm ready to make a determination about this person. They will come to you, and they will start asking questions. And you know what happens in that moment? A switch happens. You go from being witness to evangelist. When they come to you, that's what the end of that verse in Colossians says, now is the time where you'll give a reason for why you do the things you do. So they will say, listen, I've been watching you walk around the workplace and clearly you have a different something. What is it that's so different about you? And now you say, yes, now is the time when I switch from being witness to evangelist, proclaimer of the truth that I'm living for a different homeland. I'm not storing up for myself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, but treasures in heaven. Point number three. Extraordinary witnesses established in the ordinary. We've been talking about that. Making known the source of your daily strength will give you that effective witness. Look back at the last two verses of the text. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord. This is worship. Calling on the name of the Lord in the Old Testament means worship. Called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. When the Bible mentions a new name of God, that's what we have here. It is not, don't, don't miss this, a new name of God is not merely a new title. That's not what this is. This is the first time that this new name of God is given in the whole scripture, the everlasting God. And in the Hebrew, it is the word El Olam. El Olam. You might want to jot that down in the corner of your Bible. El Olam. Olam means perpetual, always forever, without beginning or end. So Abraham now, after doing this business transaction, goes off by himself 
and worships God in a new name. El Olam, the everlasting God. What is it about what just took place with Abimelech that made Abraham give God a brand new name? Well, when Abimelech was watching what was happening, studying Abraham's life, watching his reality TV show, he saw, remember this, he saw that Abraham's power and strength came from a different source. Remember, this is a king that's treating a migrant like he has the same amount of power. What? Why would it, it would be like Barack Obama coming to make a business deal with a homeless man. Although Abraham had rights to this land, he was viewed by the rest of the people as having no home. And a king wants to do business with this man, he sees him as an equal in power. Why? Perhaps the most popular place in the whole Bible where this name for God, El Olam, is used is Isaiah chapter 40. Many of you know this chapter, and many of you have this passage memorized. Here Isaiah is talking to a group of people that have lost their source of strength. And listen to what he says. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, El Olam, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases his strength. This is what Abimelech is seeing in Abraham. This man who's supposed to not be powerful. He's just as powerful as me. He sees God. Let's continue. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You can't read that passage quietly. What Abimelech witnessed by watching Abraham's ordinary day-to-day life was a man who drew his daily strength from a different source. And that resource made him stand out. Trusting God in the ordinary course of business as usual supplies outsiders with a constant evidence of the perpetual faithfulness of God. To call on the name of the Lord is to worship. Of course we see people calling on the name of the Lord when 9-11 happens. We see an influx. Of course we see an influx of people calling on the name of the Lord when school shootings happen. But when a man or woman calls upon the name of the everlasting God in the course of their day-in and day-out life, it's different. It has a different impact on those who are watching and studying your life. And it's by no coincidence that God arranged it so that it was through this particular kind of witness that the majority of the people, like Abimelech, will be attracted. Not through the extraordinary events. Many of you, if an extraordinary event happened today, If someone came to your door and said, if you claim to follow Jesus, I'm going to execute you. Many of you, I believe, in this room would say, execute away, I belong to Jesus. But if you want to have a witness that really affects people, it's in the everyday, ordinary choices that you make. So let me ask you as we draw this in for a landing. Do people see you praying at your desk before you start work? Do your children see you praying before you start the day and send them off to school? Do they see you giving thanks when you're out at a business lunch and you're the only believer? 
to the God who supplied you with that, with that food? Do they see you open your Bible when you're on your breaks because you need that everlasting God all throughout your day? If you don't, how will they ever see? How will they ever see El Olam, the everlasting God? They may, but it won't be through your witness. Church, I don't know about you, but when my life is over, I want people to know what I lived for. I want people to know. And it's, honestly, it's not going to happen by the fact that I'm a preacher. It won't. It'll be the daily decisions I make when I'm mowing my lawn. That will be the billboard that will scream loudest. What message are you sending out to people? What are people reading when they study the billboard of your life? Has anyone ever approached you and say, it's so clear, I've been watching you, that God is with you in all that you do? Has anyone ever said that to you? If not, let me, let me close this with just a hypothetical. If not, if no one's ever said that to you, could it be, could it be that as they've been gathering all this data about what your daily source of sustenance is, about your daily source of treasure, about your daily source of strength. Could it be when they've gathered all the data about all these things, they've determined that it's no different than them? If no one has ever come to you and said, listen, tell me about this God because you're clearly different, could it be that your life looks exactly the way theirs does? Here's how I want to encourage you. If you say, yeah, pastor, that's me. Court is still in session. God is still calling you as a witness. There's still time, Christian. There's still time before that gavel finally comes down and God says, there's no longer need for witnesses anymore. Come up here, bride of mine. Friends, I hope you want your life to matter for the right thing in the end. I hope you want your witness to count for Christ in the end. I want to pray with you about that right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's go to God. Father, I pray for every person in this room that we would live lives that at the end we would be knowing that we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little and now I'm going to put you over much. Help us to be a witness for the truth of the cross everywhere we go, knowing that our treasure is elsewhere. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.